Welcome to Talk is Sheep, the official podcast of the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Brought to you by our title sponsor, Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Come along with us as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. We have partnered with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab to help get you in shape and mentally stronger. Whether you're a veteran hunter or just starting out, the Mountain Tough app will take you to the next level. We personally train using the Mountain Tough programs and we believe in it so much that we want to give you six weeks for free using code SHEEPBC. That's S-H-E-E-P-B-C. Check out Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. You won't be disappointed. I have to say this is pretty cool. We're going to do our first podcast with uh, the president of the Wild Sheep Society BC as the host of the show. <laughs> well, that's a, that's an intro, I guess. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that happened this past weekend, didn't it? I'm now uh, so, El Presidente. <laughs> has it uh, settled in yet or what? How's it, how's it feel to be... Hey, I know you literally like 30 seconds after the AGM, you're getting texts and emails and people are complaining about this and that. And you're like, oh yeah, here, here it is. <laughs> yeah, there was a um, a moment there. Oh yeah, almost right away we're just like, oh, what did I sign up for? But uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. There's been a lot of uh, welcoming people from, you know, our membership, different chapters and affiliates, other organizations, everyone reaching out and, you know, welcoming to welcoming me to the club so to speak of people who are going to be at the the good end of the stick and the shit end of the stick <laughs> all at the same time yeah yeah well awesome man i i have to say i'm really excited you know we've been really really blessed as an organization we've had incredible leadership Corey green did a great job and and uh you know we're going to bid him adieu as our president luckily he's staying on as our past president he's still on the board and uh, Corey's been a fantastic leader, and uh, I'm really, really excited about you, Greg. I know that you're going to you've you've served on our executive now for a number of years. You've done a fantastic job as a secretary. In my opinion, the best secretary we've ever had. Sorry for those that are listening to this that did this before, <laughs> Greg. Um, but you provide a provide a lot of leadership to our team. So amazing, super stoked. Our board is chocker block full of great hardworking individuals and I'm super excited about the year ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, uh, that board of directors we have now, it's, it's an exciting one. It wasn't, it was exciting before, but you know, it's after this weekend, I don't know. I just got a, I got a feeling just a buzz. There's a buzz around us too. It's, we got a team of heavy lifters and you know, we're going to make things happen for this province. Awesome. So Greg, talk talk to me about this weekend. We we did our Salute to Conservation Mountain Hunting Expo, and this was kind of a proof of concept year. We came up with this idea. We thought it was solid. You know, it was a risk. We took a risk. Um, we moved to a new venue, new dates. We expanded, did two full banquets, two full days of uh, expo. Uh, you know, we started out, historically, we'd do 10, maybe 11 vendors. Uh, somebody said to me, do you remember like five years ago when we had a freaking hallway and Omer? That was our convention. And I'm like, yeah, I, I remember that pretty clear. Um, and, you know, we grew this thing into a beast, uh, 55 booths. Uh, the place was teeming with people. The best of the best were there. You know, uh, we had uh, Stone Glacier and Gunworks and Kafaru and uh, Fierce Firearms and Sitka Gear 
and you know lots of great local retailers, uh, Precision Optics, uh, Italian Sporting Goods, Knife Makers, Frontiersman Gear, uh, Don Stevenson, Stevenson Knives was there. Our Sheep Hunting University was chocker block full of experts, like guys that are really well respected in the field. You know, the Adam Fosses of the world, uh, the Ray Weens. Uh, I think the Horn Aging, they had 250 people there for that seminar. You couldn't walk in there. I, did you see that? I didn't see it, but. No, I didn't see it. We unfortunately didn't get to spend too much time on that show floor, but I heard it was yeah. packed. They borrowed my drill to plug a ram during it, I believe. And like it was well received, definitely well received. Oh, awesome, the more man. What? Out aging, the better. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. What a great weekend, man. Uh, like hats off to you and your board and our team and, uh, and all the hardworking staff and volunteers, our volunteers, man, like <sighs> Kelly, like, um, Joe, Mike Southern, like 18, 20 hours a day, just not, and, and not just one or two guys or gals. It, it was phenomenal, dude. Uh, one for the books. And, and the cool thing is, is we're coming off this weekend and we're like, we can identify where we can do better. We can identify where we can grow the vendor experience a little bit. We're identifying areas where we can grow a little bit on the banquet side without too much. Cause there's something special about what we got here, right? Um, you know, the big shows are the big shows, right? We've got WSF, we've got uh, Western Hunt, we've got Shot. That they're, they're beasts. And we, we don't even want to be that. We're not even trying to be that. We created this environment where it's uh, inclusive, it's exciting, but then there's this direct with the, you know, the vendors are, are um, able to to dialogue with their, their um, supporters or, or, I guess, customer base and, it was just a cool feeling, man. And I just got so many great, so much great feedback. And I just can't, like, next year's going to be insane. Off the charts. <laughs> yeah, we set that bar pretty pretty damn high. <laughs> um, but, yeah, there's definitely room for growth. There's room to improve. And, you know, some of the feedback we've received from people has been phenomenal. Like, I can't, I can't even put it into words how much it means to me and, you know, we're sharing it with the rest of the board and the board sharing it with us, but every social media post we come across, it's just like, you guys nailed it. The best show we've ever been to. Like it's, I don't know, I'm proud of what we've accomplished and it's, you know, take my hat off to, uh, to a our board and then our staff, like you guys crushed it. Everyone crushed it. It was a, a team effort and, you know, from, me just packing around mountains, mounts and building walls to, you know, you guys doing the heavy lifting behind the scene. It's everyone did their part and it came together and you know, we, we changed the game, I think. So I'm going to, I'm going to say this now. I'm going to stand by this is ladies and gentlemen, if you actually want to check out the show and trust me, you do because it was freaking insane. It was amazing. It's a local show. It's relatively cheap. It's in your home province. It's easy to get there. It's the least expensive thing you can do if you want to go check out these shows. And you're going to want to check it out. I'm telling you this now, that we're going to grow it a little bit, but we have limited capacity. And when the tickets are gone, they're gone forever. So if, you, if you're actually thinking about coming this year, the day it goes on sale, get your tickets. Because if you call me a week after, two weeks after, and you want tickets, sorry, it's just not going to happen. Um, maybe you'll be lucky and it won't sell out quite as 
but I, I have a feeling this year it's going to be what we're talking about is what do we do if it sells out quick? Um, you know, we obviously want to have everyone come and enjoy it, but uh, so don't mess around this year. Obviously, we're literally months away. Ticket sales won't happen until um, early winter, late fall. But um, but that said, you know, keep an eye out for things because they're they're going to go fast. The people people want to be part of the show, and then of course with the vendors, we're gonna. We're going to have that, the vendor experience again, and that was super cool to have that in British Columbia. It's something like we've never done before. Um, it's it's a trade show that's super unique um, to the industry. So, yeah, amazing. Amazing, dude. Yeah, it was exciting. But uh, I guess we should move along to some other things that we have in the books here. Um, something happened at that show. We announced the, what are we calling it, the Half Curl Youth Life Membership. You bet. And we auctioned off the spot numero uno at the life member breakfast. And, it, you know, that was cool to see. People really wanted to be number one on that list or have their kids number one on that list, I should say. And I'm a, yeah, it's, it's a cool way to get your kids involved. You know, it's 500 bucks. And at 18, they can choose if they want to continue and throw down another 500 and become full life members. Yeah, super cool. Uh, lots of uh, excitement. I've got about a dozen requests for that. It just went live on the website today, so it's up there. Get get them. Get an early number. It's a great investment. And you know, our vision with this is let's get these youngsters involved in conservation and and sheep hunting and and the future of what we all love. Let's continue to to sort of support that. And uh, we think this is going to be really successful. We've got some really cool plans. We're not going to announce anything, but we're going to do some special giveaways every year for our Youth Life members. So it's it's a great organization or great uh, membership to have. And uh, and then you can just upgrade to a life member once you hit 18. And we're going to kind of do like a ceremony, like a coming of age ceremony when at the show each year. Because we're going to know when everybody's hitting 18, they'll upgrade and then they'll be at the show and we can present them their plaques if they decide to upgrade to a full life member and yeah it's just a cool thing this was inspired by joe appel and our membership chair peter gucha um they you know they worked hard on this and the membership committee and i think it's a really really cool program yeah well and then along with that in that same life member breakfast we rolled out a couple new new things there a diamond membership and a pinnacle membership for uh some people that really want to throw down the cash for wild sheep in bc yeah, you know, we're seeing more and more of this. We've got uh, our Tide Charity, the Mount Wildlife Conservation Society. For Canadians, you can get a charitable tax receipt, so it's a great opportunity there. Uh, it's a way to give for wild sheep the things that we care deeply about. And uh, you know what happened? We ta- tapped out, Greg. We got to the top of sort of our list um, with our Platinum membership, and uh, some guys came to us and said that we want to do more. So we created a, a diamond level and the pinnacle level. And so those are live now too. And, and uh, you know, we'll expect that some people, some people have already signed up. We've got two people signed up already. And uh, yeah, just a great way to give back and, and then also gets a little bit of recognition too while you're at it because everyone likes to to be known for, for caring about uh, wild sheep. So super cool. Yeah, that's a, uh, you know, people that are willing to throw down that much money for wild sheep, it's inspiring. Like it's, if you don't have the time or whatever, but you have the money and you can, and you're willing to put it down and get your tax receipt and, you know, that money's going on the ground and we're doing amazing things with it and our board's doing amazing things and we're, our partners are doing amazing things and it's, it's just one hell of a team we've got going on here between everybody from the supporters, the members, the donors, the 
oh, it's just everyone all around. I'm, I'm jacked. I'm still buzzing from the weekend, man. I'm just, it's still going. Yeah, you're but, pretty fired uh, up. Me too. Yeah. Well, but before you just go on, I just want to say one thing that I also heard that with that Monarch membership, if you upgrade, that the president's buying whiskey for everybody. So I, I don't know. <laughs> you know what's crazy? I think I only had one person at the Northern hit me up with that comment. <laughs> Is that right? Eh? Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> that's walked away pretty scot-free. Oh, you know, that's awesome. I, I, I could have been bankrupt on whiskeys. <laughs> you know, at least we, we held a whiskey tasting event. So, you know, people got their fix there and it wasn't on me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, right on. Very cool. So we got... Uh, Another thing in the book, since we're always doing stuff here, we've got our WSRs are still running. So we have the Desert Bighorn with Sierra Alamo. We have the Udad and Heli Hog Hunt with High West Outfitters in Texas. We have the Pronghorn Antelope Hunt again from Silver Sage Outfitters. And we have the Barney's Ultimate Sheep Camp with everything you need to wander off into the woods. Yes. So don't, yes. Don't, don't sit on those tickets. They're going hot. Um, yes. Yes. And that draw is, what, where were we looking, March 20-something, 20, 23rd? Yeah, 24th. I think it's March 23rd. We're going to draw it here in Comox, so get together. Um, I'll put a little mini pub night together at the Match Eatery and, uh, and Public House and Courtney here. And uh, we're going to give away uh, three cool hunts and then the Barney's Ultimate Sheep Camp, which is amazing. Now, I will say with all our raffles, there's still some tickets left. So your odds are really good. You know, we, we're going to sell more. We're going to be selling for the next three weeks here. But, um, you know, especially for somebody that needs a desert for their Fanaz or their Slam, go out, get your tickets and uh, and make it happen. And again, support Wild Sheep Conservation. If you didn't make the show, this is your opportunity to support us. I, I, that's what I love about WSR. You could win this freaking $80,000 hunt, $90,000 hunt, but hey, if you didn't, at least you put some money on the ground for wild sheep conservation. So, how cool is that? That's a win. It's a win. It's a win-win-win, and hopefully, you know, someone's going to win it. And I'm excited. Hopefully, maybe I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awesome, man. Very cool. So, on this podcast, we talked to Spencer Greening. Uh, Spencer is uh, an Indigenous fellow. Uh, very, very articulate. Very, really cool dude. Um, and shares some uh, very cool perspectives. And, and actually changed my way of thinking around uh, um, Indigenous communities and First Nations uh, in some capacity. You'll hear it on the podcast. On I kind of had an aha moment when he was kind of explaining some things to me. And... Um, and I, it was a it was a podcast I really enjoyed. Um, I'm looking forward to doing more work with um, Spencer, and just a really really cool cat, um, and uh, and very freaking knowledgeable guy too. Like a dyed in the wool hunter, and uh, very respectful. Um, you know, recognizes sort of uh, the disconnect between indigenous and non indigenous communities, and really wants to bridge that gap. So, yeah, a very cool podcast, and I think you you know our listeners are going to enjoy this one. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I haven't heard it yet, so uh, I'm excited. I'll be tuning in on my few-minute drive to work. No, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'll take you 37 days to get through it all, right? <laughs> I might have to sit in the truck and let it warm up for a bit while I listen. I <laughs> yeah. yeah, awesome. So um, with that, we're off to Spencer Greening. Enjoy the listen. This episode is sponsored by our conservation partner, Precision Optics. 
Thank you Sitka Gear and Precision Optics for investing in healthy wildlife and sustainable ecosystems. Good afternoon, Spencer, and welcome to Talk is Sheep. It's uh, great to connect. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm just excited to be here. So I understand you're over on Vancouver Island and you're hard at work uh, with the with work and your PhD and everything that's going on there and uh you're you're back in my hometown of Victoria. Yeah, I'm uh, supposed to be done my PhD, but I'm not yet. But hopefully after a month I'll be able to submit that, tidy that up and then um I've got a a postdoc scholarship here at University of Victoria to write a book on uh indigenous conceptions of uh, ecolog or indigenous ecological laws, what it means to harvest from an ecosystem that you have been a part of for millennia, but also deeply care about and love. And it's kind of just going to be my own musings, philosophies, stories, teachings around all of that and personal experience. Very cool. There's a whole bunch of stuff I want to sort of unpack, but uh, we <laughs> jumped right into that. So yeah in a in a situation like that so you're obviously that would be a grant through uvic or or how does that work like where does where does that system come into play with regards to funding and everything yeah exactly um nowadays for those that don't know and i don't blame you if you don't know um in academia it's getting so ridiculous on um how many degrees universities pump out that now when you get a phd it's still hard to get a teaching job and it's kind of accepted that you can get like a postdoctorate and universities will fund you to continue your research to bump up your resume cv but also if they like your research then it's a bonus and you can kind of just spend an extra year or two pursuing that passion and i've sort of done my best to milk that to write a book very cool so you create this book now, is that the property of the university because they funded it? Is that a, a Spencer product? And then, you know, so let's say it's wildly successful and you're on tour and making millions of dollars. <laughs> Who's the benefactor of that? I guess you're the author, so you you certainly would get some of that. I think it, it depends on who's publishing the book. Um, I haven't published a book yet, so I don't know those uh, nitty gritty details. I assume that uh, it's like record companies and music. The publisher gets all the money. Um, yeah, you get some notoriety is my guess. I don't know though. Right. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we'll have to find you a good publicist so that you can, uh, you can reap the rewards of, uh, get a good contract there, but, uh, no, all kidding aside. So, well, welcome to the podcast. Really excited to connect. And, uh, uh, you know, you're so good at articulating about, um, you know, your experiences and, um, uh, your, um, indigenous background and, uh, really great communication um, very interesting and and diverse um, uh, background and and also your studies are are fascinating. So, you know, today we're gonna unpack a whole bunch of that stuff. Talk about what your PhD study is. Um, talk about hunting. Talk about indigenous laws. But before we do that, let's kind of tee that up and just let our listeners know a little bit about who you are, where you came from, and kind of your uh, ties to wildlife and your interest in, in the backcountry and, and hunting and, and all that sort of great stuff. Cool. Yeah. Um, easy, right? Easy. Yeah. Uh, so for those that don't know me, my name is Spencer Greening and I'm Simshian from the Northwest coast. Uh, a lot of people don't know where the Simshian live, but most people know where Haida Gwaii is 
if you took Haida Gwaii and flipped it right onto the to the mainland, so sort of over top of Prince Rupert and a touch south, that's Simshian territory. I come from a small community called Hartley Bay, the Gitgat First Nation or Gitgata people in our language. And my, my Simshian name is Lapod, um, which has several different meanings. Um, I've come across several meanings. One is just of the heart or to be of the heart. And another is of no use heart, which is probably my favorite because it comes from a law around hunting grizzly bears where you're not allowed to eat the heart of a grizzly bear because they eat humans and the human souls are embedded within them. And so it's taboo to eat that grizzly bear heart. So la rod in some circumstances refers to the, the heart of the grizzly bear. Um, so before I digress too much, um, <laughs> I, I, I didn't grow up in my community and that's worth noting. My mom is um, Simshian, my dad is um, German Canadian heritage and um, they met in Prince Rupert and then we moved to the interior, uh, just a few hours interior to a place called Burns Lake. My mom ended up working with the Lake Babine Nation there and I grew up there sort of in the rural areas of Burns Lake and always have been in love with the outdoors and uh, and uh, every chance we would get, I would be up in Prince Rupert staying with my grandparents. And uh, and so that's like my connection. And as I got older, I, I just became more interested in Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous culture. It was sort of always around, but you know, you don't really pay attention to things when you're a teenager. And then as you get older, you start to find meaning in a lot of stuff. And, and I really found meaning in... Um, Initially, it was like our stories around just oral histories around war. And um, they just sort of encapsulated my mind and interest and then our language. And then as you learn the language, you see how embedded it is, with, is within the ecosystem, and within the natural world. And so long story short, I start going to university. I get interested in all these topics. On paper, I become an anthropologist. And I start doing research for my people, for the, the, the Gitgat First Nation, the Gitgata people, but also sometimes the larger Simshian. And uh, I start to, not only does my like passion of being outdoors, being in the bush continue, but also um, I start to see how ancient relationships like ancient cultures have these deep relationships with ecosystems that just unveil beautiful truths about what it means to be human and what it means to be human living within a specific ecosystem and taking care of it and taking from it and so that sort of curiosity just led me to keep asking questions and get more interested what does it mean like, what are our laws around harvesting? And what are, what are our philosophies? And maybe there's ceremonies, maybe there's spirituality, maybe there's just certain language that we use around harvesting. And more and more, that just became an interest to me. And so as I continue my journey as an anthropologist, I uh, become very passionate about learning 
uh, indigenous traditional ecological knowledge, as it's called in academic circles, and how indigenous knowledge, um, indigenous harvests can be very sustainable, but also at times indigenous knowledge systems around harvesting um, can actually benefit ecosystems. And so as we collaborate um, in, in the research world with biologists, um, indigenous knowledge holders, you start to see just this like this ingenuity of humans and what it means to be a human living in a place for millennia and how you can live in this sort of, um, at times, a mutually beneficial relationship with the natural world. And so my, my job now is to kind of live those practices, but also tell those stories and I'm going to milk that job as long as I can. <laughs> we'll see how far that goes. So hopefully that's good enough of an introduction, Kyle. Um, not to mention through this process, I've grown to love mountain hunting. And my favorite animal are mountain goats. And the Tsimshian take mountain goats very seriously. And uh, also, I've successfully gone on one sheep hunt. And I've, I've got that. You know, hunger, uh, addicted to sheep hunting, and I, I, I want to go every year now, but I haven't been able to. I get preoccupied with many things, but hopefully, I'll stop there and let me know if you have questions or want to take the conversation elsewhere. Yeah, amazing and uh, great, great background and and perspective there. One thing I'm curious about is you left the your Shimshian uh, community and moved to Burns Lake. But you talked about this fascination with war and with language. So, did you grow up with your um, with the Shimshian uh, language? Uh, well, I guess um, it'd be the Gitga language would be uh, would be the language you spoke. Did you grow up with that? Did your mom foster that in you, or is that something you kind of went back and sort of became more acquainted with when you went to university? Yeah, um, both my uh, grandparents were victims of the residential school system. Indian day school system. And so my grandfather, luckily, he was able to um, avoid that till he was about 10, I think. And so for a good portion of his life, he was a fluent speaker. Um, as he went through the residential school system, he sort of lost the language um, and then got involved in your sort of normal workforce in Prince Rupert and um, wasn't around it as much, but he was st still very knowledgeable. And he sort of fostered that by the time I was like 15, 16, 17. And then after that, I just started hanging out with elders as much as I could because my mom wasn't a speaker. Um, and and yeah, that's kind of how it started. So did you go back to Haida Gwaii, uh, Sim, Sim Shien, I think I said Shim Shien, but Sim Shien. Uh, did you go back there to learn the language or did you learn it in the Burns Lake community or how did, where did, what fostered that, that understanding of the language? Obviously be, it's not something you pick up easily for reading a book, I would imagine. Yeah, totally. And to clarify a few things here, um, Haida Gwaii is a totally separate uh, cultural community, though we, uh, there's a lot of crossover in the cultural practices through like governance, hereditary systems, clan systems completely different languages as though they're about as they're even more um uh distinct and separate than you would say like um 
English to, I don't know, uh, um, to Russian or something. They're very distinct languages, which really gets anthropologists excited about how remote they are from each other. Anyways, and then you have the Simshian, and by the time you cruise from, let's say, Prince Rupert to Terrace, you're sort of leaving Simshian country into Gixan country. And by the time you hit like Hazleton into the Smithers Burns Lake area, you're um, slowly going into um, like Babine carrier country. So totally different languages. And so for me, once that interest started, I was going back to Prince Rupert where there were many fluent speakers still. And um, there's luckily still an okay number. It's, it's a dying language for sure. But um, uh, started just studying and talking and hanging out with as many elders as um, I could. Very cool. So then that built that interest in it. And is it exclusively that language that you were studying and interested in? Or, or was there other languages you were studying and, and uh, were interested? At that point, it was that la the language. And, and as yeah. I mentioned, uh, it was the, in the, what we would call, Simaliach is the, the word for the Simshian language, which if you were to define it, it means true speak or, or true language. And um, again, once you start learning that, you learn so many other aspects of a culture. And for me, the piece I just glommed onto right away was just this harvesting um, uh, outdoors piece that so much of the language is tied to how we use place names and how those place names speak to, to our relationship with um, our ecological or harvesting relationship to this place. And then that's sort of became the branch where I started pursuing um, more knowledge around just um, our territories and, and harvesting. So there was kind of this evolution of you becoming interested in your uh, language and your heritage and your past. And uh, where did your connection to the outdoors and wildlife and hunting, did you grow up hunting? Was you, were you in a hunting family or how did that aspect evolve? So it was always around me, but I didn't care that much. Um, mm -hmm. My dad wasn't really into it, but my mom was. And hilariously, my dad was kind of like, I, I don't want to, I mean, <laughs> I remember my mom like secretly going out and like tarping up the family vehicle so she could go help um, folks like bring moose quarters back home and all this stuff. And she'd be like, don't tell your dad, but we're sneaking out and we're going, picking up moose cords because she didn't want to get blood all over the vehicle. And <laughs> um, my dad was like kind of turned off by it. But then um, down the line, my parents separated. Um, and I don't, I, I don't want to feel like I'm talking bad about my dad. I love my dad. He's a great guy. Um, but my mom um, married an, uh, an Ojibwe man in Burns Lake as well. And he was, his family was really into the outdoors. And so as a teenager, that just showed up more and more. And um, like my my grandfather, all the elders I'm hanging out with, that's what they live. That's what they grew up doing. Um, my PhD focuses on a village, an old village site, our main village site prior to reserve creation that we were forced off of. Um, but that village site is where my grandpa spent a lot of time growing up. And a lot of my mentors were actually born and raised there in the 30s and 40s traveling by cedar dugout canoe living in the longhouses li being literally born in the smokehouses in the longhouses there and so the the way they see the world and interact with the world is just so unique and different and so 
as that sort of momentum of hunting kept showing up in my life, it was like, okay, I'm going to start getting into it. And then once I got back into it, so to speak, it, it just took off. And I was like, this is all I can think about. And this is all I want to do. Mm -hmm. as, so what's... As, I was going to say, oh. as just so you know, my mom, it's like, we were always going out fishing and stuff, but like, my mom was always in interested in hunting and, and at 55 years old, um, she came out like goat hunting with us. Like she's into it. She's <laughs> wow, always been into awesome. it. That's very cool. So your first, your, your first hunts, like obviously you'd go out with your mom and you guys were collecting moose quarters and, and that sort of stuff. But where, what was kind of the first hunt where you were up, like you were actually going out and harvesting an animal. What would, what had that been for you? So my first hunt was a bear hunt and it would have been my um, late teens. And I, I was spending a lot of time with this elder um, who, who was a carrier elder and she was just this amazing person. And, um, and, and she was just talking a lot about bears and the power they hold and the traditional teachings of bears and the medicinal value and all, just all the things that, the bear comes with that i don't even not entirely sure it's my place to say this because this was her culture but between like spiritual ceremony medicines and they're just inherent sort of sacred value to the culture um it, it really spoke to me and she told me you know if you want to hunt a bear you should go do it i would love to get some meat i love this this and and so I was just like, you know, it feels uh, like I should just go do this. And that was really the thing that that first time that I went out and um, harvested it with an older buddy who was like kind of a mentor at the time, too. And and um, and yeah, and then it just kept going after that. Ever since then, I've always loved bear hunting and I, I still do today. And there's a lot of meaning in bear hunting for me. Did you grow up eating a lot of wild meat or it was sort of a mix of everything, particularly with your dad not being, you know, too keen on the hunting aspect of it? So how did you guys, what did you do for a subsistence perspective? Yeah, it's funny because a lot of stories people talk about how it's their dads who got them into hunting, but it yeah. was always my mom. And it's very common in Indigenous communities, I think, for women to like take that role on. You talk to women today, they're like, I want to marry a man who's a provider. I want to like, I want a hunter, like women, just indigenous women hold that role really, really well. And like making sure that that's taken care of in life. And so, I mean, it, you know, it, it was around, like my mom would get shipments of food from Prince Rupert growing up. And um, I have memories of like bringing our traditional seaweed to class and being made fun of for eating seaweed. Um, <laughs> and so, I mean, it was just in and out and uh yeah that's cool so now you talked lots about uh the mountain goat you talked about how it's important to um your community but certainly for you as well what's the connection is it because of i guess the abundance of mountain goats in your community is that kind of the main driver or is it just that reverence for where they live I, I, there's lots of people that would say that too i think a lot of people hold bears sheep sheep and mountain goats this high level of reverence but it's uh i'd love to hear why why they're so important to you specifically well i think before you even like know the stories and the teachings you look at a mountain goat like you say they, they, there's this reverence they hold this power 
that is inexplicable on some level. And um, I, th they're so unique and magical in what they do and how they live. Uh, yeah, so, so that's like a given on why they're interesting. Um, yes, on the coast too, the, the, the Simshian do have a great uh, population of mountain goat in our general territory. If you think of the Skeena and the outer coast and those, uh, those geographies. But we also have this story as a culture where like the mountain goats sort of set us straight. And it's one of our sort of initial origin stories. Um, it's shared with a lot of people like the Niska, the Gixan, maybe even the Wet'suwet'en um, as you go to like Smithers area. I'm not totally sure, so I don't want to speak for sure on that behalf. But we at least, the Simshian and the, the Gikat First Nation, the Gikata people, we hold the story of when we used to live up in the Hazeltons and um, people were doing all kinds of things wrong. And and uh, um, it's the mountain goats that sort of go through this transformation of uh, tr transforming into humans and inviting us up to this feast in the mountains. And there's a whole bunch of details in this event, but in the end, they their songs and their, their performances cause the mountains to collapse. And they sort of destroy a civilization. And after that civilization's destroyed, they lay out these rules on how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to harvest. And there's this common theme in many Simshian stories that's super interesting to me and kind of opposite when you think of like, I think what your average mainstream person in society would think of like conservation. Um, but this thought that oh, humans are supposed to harvest, but we just have to harvest a certain way in a respectful way. And it's inherently, like us as hunters, we know it's like inherently human to, to, to hunt and to, to have to kill to survive. Um, and so a part of this environmental ethic that came out of the story was these mountain goats saying, hey, we know you have to harvest us and we know our death is necessary for society, for your society to function, for the ecosystem to function. And, uh, and and many animals say this in their own stories too, because we kind of have stories for each species. A similar sort of rhetoric where it's, we know you need to depend on us, uh, but here are the ways that we're gonna let you harvest us. And they lay out a series of events. Um, and and those often involve ceremony, they involve specific seasons, specific ways of harvesting. And then you fast forward today through millennia of practices, that's how we've ingrained these Simshian laws of what it means to harvest mountain goat. And so between that story and um, and just, there's also like very unique things about mountain goat where there's high, their hide is so beautiful. And um, I don't know if you've heard of the Chilcat blanket. It, no, I haven't. It's it's a blanket entirely woven out of mountain goat wool. And not like the fur, but the undercoat wool. Mm. And so it's like rolled into wool yarn and then just woven into some of the most beautiful blankets. And only people of extremely high rank could wear them. And it would it, it would traditionally cost so much to make this between harvesting the mountain goat and having a master weaver 
And so you can look them up. You could Google chill cat blanket and they originated amongst the Simshian, even though they became more famous up in the chill cat area in the, in the Southeast Alaska. Um, but that was like one aspect. And also their horns are like used for spoons, the most decorated spoons. And you see these things in like people's households that come from a long time ago, beautifully carved goat horn spoons. And there's just like that artistic piece. There's the historical story piece. And then there's the spiritual piece of like, okay, mountain goats, one of the only animals where we're told we have to follow these ceremonies in order to hunt it. And so there's this, this majesticness in the whole process as a Simshian person. Also, it's kind of like, it's almost like they're off limits until you do an immense amount of training, which um, something I kind of want to talk about is just this sort of accountability to being a good person and a good harvester in order to be allowed to harvest goats or prized animals that It's just this law and ethic in, in at least my indigenous community, but I've heard it many places. So long story short, all those things combined is what brought me into in the, my interest in mountain goats and mountain hunting. Super cool. Let's talk about these, these sort of um, ancient laws, these, you know, laws that have been around from, for the longest time. Has there been an evolution in it? I'm, I'm sure the root of the law is similar. Is there like, you know, written laws now, is it all word of mouth? Um, so let's talk about maybe the history of that. And, and what are some of those rules? Like, you know, you talked about being in a, you know, uh, uh, worthy of being able to harvest sort of, you know, you've gone through the training. So you, you know, what, what does that involve? Uh, you know, I'm curious, you know, of course there's the nanny versus Billy issue. They want, want us harvesting billies. Is that something that you guys adhere to, um, or do adhere to? And then I'm also curious about, you know, harvests, uh, you know, how much you can harvest and that sort of stuff. So I'd love to dive into all that stuff and, and get a perspective on that, Spencer, if you could. Yeah, I, and, and I'll preface this with like, I think listeners need to understand that we can't romanticize that all hunters have access to this knowledge, all Indigenous hunters. Mm -hmm. the, the Canadian system actively removed us from our territories and stripped away the language and the knowledge and the governance systems and the, the education systems that allowed for people to learn this. I am extremely privileged in that my village is ex very remote. It's only accessible by boat or seaplane. And so many of our elders just missed that system and grew up in this. But it, it's very complex and there's this juggling act of how do we honor these systems, continue to teach them, but also revive them in other communities where they were hit harder by colonization, by residential school, by urbanization, by all these things that are very complex and nuanced. So I'll preface with that. Um, um, but also emphasizing that these are things that I do practice. And it's my goal to pass these teachings and this knowledge down to the younger generation. And so, I, I mean, I can sort of start... Um, for our listeners for um, who, who won't know, but I, I passed this chapter of my thesis on to Kyle that I hope to publish in an academic journal soon. I sort of lay out some of these laws, even though with journals you have a, a word count maximum, and so I can't lay all of them out. But I'll try to go through some of those that might be of interest. So one of the first laws that I think people find is interesting is our mountain goat hunting season. 
which is usually September um, and then like March, late winter, um, early spring. And so the reason uh, that it sort of goes through middle of fall, we rarely harvest as it gets close to the rut. Um, but we want to harvest before the rut because fat is so, there's a few reasons. First one, fat is so highly prized by the Tsimsian people. Mountain goat fat, um, when I get it, I try to jar it because it, it's just so valuable. The You use it for food, you use it for spiritual practices, for offerings, for all kinds of things. Um, in many of our stories, there's deep meaning and importance of offering mountain goat fat to different areas on the ocean. And it's said that beings under the water, this, we, we have a name for them. We call them nachnoch, but the beings under the water that cause weather changes, that can cause disaster, they crave mountain goat fat. And so to kill a goat um, at a time, this kind of contradicts the later season of March, but to kill a goat at this time in the fall and not to take the fat is just an absolute no-no. It's, it's, it's worse than you know, what's the waste not laws that mm -hmm. residents would have? It's worse than that in our eyes. To leave meat in the bush, you would never leave fat, mountain goat fat. So that's one reason. Another reason in the fall is um, right before like the billies sort of corral up with the, the nannies for a lack of better word. They're like, the billies are sort of hanging out together, Right. They're, they're doing their thing. And if you study an area, you can really nail down the billies on what they're doing. And my elders have always taught me that um, this importance of harvesting young billies, young males. And there's a few things going on there. Um, back to the, the fact that the billies are sort of grouping together. Um, when they do that, they kind of have their own billy sort of trail networks that the nannies aren't sort of engaging in. The nannies have their own trail works and the billies are sort of going back and forth, cruising, looking for the nannies that'll accept them. But they have their own billy trail networks. And in the fall and in the winter, um, you can almost nail down those trails and treat them as a trap line. And so one thing I kind of allude to in, in that chapter, which again, I don't think I had enough time to talk or word space to talk about, is how often mountain goat hunting is almost like working a trap line for the Simshian. And of course, that's changed today how we use rifles and um, if you want archery. But prior to rifles, often it was mountain goats were harvested via snare on these billy trap lines, or um, you'd wait for them, uh, wait literally above them on these trap lines, so on a cliff or something and spear them from above or push them right off a cliff. And so you're working this billy trap line as a uh, conservation ethic. And the reason being is because nannies are obviously going to uh, uh, mate with an older billy, and you didn't want to disrupt the dynamic of those older billies. And so this was sort of knowledge that was passed down. And interestingly, in a few years ago, there was an archaeological study in the, done in the Prince Rupert Harbor 
and um, they dug up this site that was just full of mountain goat bones. It ended up the vast majority of those bones were from young billies. And so it's cool just to see these teachings align with the archaeological report. And so that's another piece of this sort of fall hunt. Um, another aspect of this is uh, there's this very prized alpine berry, the alpine blueberry that elders just crave. And so it's like, if you're going for goats, go mid-September or something so you can get that berry to mid to late September, early October maybe. Um depending on the area, to get that berry for the elders. And so that's kind of our season. And, um, and, and yeah, I, that's our fall season. You go to the winter. Often elders have told me the only other time we harvested goats was right before the Ulican run. And it's kind of like you've been starved of meat all through the winter. And so you're just craving meat. For us, the, um, I was going to say the Ulican run is the new year, but then I realized people might not even know what the Ulican is. Yeah, I don't. So yeah, Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> so the Ulican <laughs> is this fish. Um, you might hear them Ulican, Hooligans, or Ulican, or Candlefish. They're this fish that was of huge importance on the coast because they showed up at like right at the end of winter and they were packed full of nutrients and super oily. And so we would make oil out of them. The reason they're called candlefish is you can dry them and light them on fire and they'll act like a candle. And so that was this first big, like after this winter of potential starvation, you're excited for Ulican. But also the mountain goats are moving away from the nannies again because they're done their winter mating. Or, sorry, the billies are moving away from the nannies. And they're back on these like billy trapline networks. And so you can target mountain goat again on those sort of trapline networks. And it timed well with like the one reason we'd harvest these billies um, is to sort of bring in the new year uh, because we haven't had meat. And even though they don't have much fat, um, they'll still have that underlayer, that coat that we would use for chillcat blankets. Um, and, and, and so that was another special time to go get them sort of, uh, late winter, early spring. So wow. that's some of the laws on harvesting season. Let's, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about being fit to do it. So it's interesting. You talked about the trap line and Billy trap line and, and spearing them. So, okay. So now you're on a cliff. There's a goat on a trail on a cliff, and you're going to jump off and spear them from above. So that that's insane. So let's talk a little bit. And you, you, obviously, you had to be incredibly uh, good at what you're doing. You had to be fit. And yeah. there probably was a lot of injury and possibly mortality doing it as well. Totally. Yeah. People talk about that. And, and so this ties into the importance of like being an introspective, thoughtful person. Um, around like the ceremony and the training that gets involved with hunting. So this is the other law. The fact that my elders didn't let me go goat hunting for years. They just always discourage it. And just like, it, it felt like, what do you mean? You don't even want mountain goat meat? Or like, why are you not letting me do this? I was thinking like, you think I'm that dumb, that stupid? Like, why aren't you letting me go? And it really, it was this, this, 
they needed to make sure that I was mentally good, good enough to go mountain goat hunting. And, and so something we should hopefully talk about is just this difference where like any jackass can get a, a mountain goat tag and they don't need to care about the species. They don't need to care about that place. They can just go harvest a mountain goat. And I understand there's nuance of like how hard it would be to gauge a person's um, emotional well-being around mountain goats provincially let alone internationally when you got people coming with mountain goat tags but it's just this ethic and like on a philosophical level it's neat to think about and so for me a part of like ceremonies which often involve um strict fasting um for days whether it's it's sometimes just food fasting sometimes it's food and water for many days um sometimes it's uh a strict diet of specific medicines you're allowed to harvest and you need to know how to harvest those medicines how to ingest them because they can be dangerous and and all this sort of introspective ceremony that forces you to control the, your mind um a lot of um like cold water bathing spiritual bathing um in the winter time at, at uh, glacier waterfalls and things like that all of that is just to strengthen one's mind, let alone the physical piece of training. And so uh, any accomplished like hunter will know how important it is to be able to control your mind in intense situations. And that was kind of this law that you needed to do this before you were allowed to go mountain goat hunting. An interesting tidbit is traditionally when it came to our hereditary chiefs, you weren't even allowed to be a hereditary chief unless you engaged in years of that. So imagine how neat it would be if our political representatives were like forced to do therapy and like introspective emotional work for decades before they could actually run for office. That's yeah, kind of what... Changer. Yeah, totally. And that's kind of what our system requires for mountain goat hunters, but also chiefs. Um, so, so that was this other piece of it. I'm sorry if I digressed, I'll let you ask questions if you have. No, no, it's, this is amazing. Uh, just one, one, I'm curious, would, uh, the elders be the ones to approve, uh, sort of some, a hunter to go and harvest? Would they, would they be the ones or would it be your family or, or who would make that decision and on who could go mountain goat hunting? Yeah, both, um, elders okay. and family. Also a piece of this, um, that is important that I'll explain for our listeners is, when you think of Simshian territory or for Hartley Bay, the Gitgat First Nation, even thinking of our territory, you have to understand our governance system to understand on like who's calling the shots on when and where to harvest. So for simplicity, um, this is very simplistic. Uh, I'm dumbing it down uh, because otherwise it would probably just sound like gobbledygook. But think of anywhere on the map but i'm talking about hartley bay and you're kind of on the mainland but there's also coastal fjords and behind those coastal island fjords is like Haida Gwaii in japan is next stop so you have all these different watersheds amongst the mainland amongst those islands and generally different clans will have different ownership or stewardship over those islands and the different hereditary representatives of those clans will generally pe be people who grew up harvesting there 
trapping there. Their trap lines are usually there um, and have this in-depth knowledge of that place. Well, they're the ones that would call the shots. And so I often ask people to imagine how BC is carved into like voting districts. You can imagine our hereditary client system carved up in a similar way where this island or this district is owned by this person's clan and the chiefs and the representatives are these people and they call those shots because they know that watershed. And also all those clans kind of come together within a governmental institution that most people would know as the potlatch. And so you can imagine it, it's kind of a very bastardized analogy, but imagine parliament where all our people come together, there's Senate, there's all these things happening. That's what the potlatch enables for us. Side note, that was made illegal and you're arrested if you participated in it um, for a whole bunch of years, which is another way people were removed from their territories in Canada, on, in British Columbia. But today it's legal. And when you hear of hereditary systems, clan systems, potlatching, that's that system. And so these places where I hunt mountain goats, I'd be in ongoing conversation with the elders who steward that area. And uh, I, as a mountain goat hunter, I would also be out there acting as like, on some level, like a biologist who monitors the area. I'm making regular trips. I'm talking with the elders saying the goats are doing this this fall. In the winter, they did this. In the spring, they're doing this. What are your thoughts? Should we harvest one this coming fall? And from there, that's when the elders would say, okay, I think you could take two billies. Or, okay, I think you could take one. And we'll let that watershed rest for a bit and move to this watershed for next year. And so those are the conversations that happen around the stewardship and, and the harvest of mountain goats. Very cool. So that's when we talk about modern day traditional ecological knowledge. Is that kind of that piece? Like, I guess some of that's, I guess they'd have that rooted history as the chief, uh, hereditary chief or the, the elder, sorry. And then you'd be out there, I guess, as the modern day biologist reporting back and, and using that to make decisions for the harvest in the community. Yeah, this is this is all traditional ecological knowledge from everything from like understanding these billy goat dynamics where we harvest almost like a trap line to who's governing and how we're making those decisions on when to harvest to like what we would call science today was traditional ecological knowledge or indigenous science that hopefully I can pass down to the youth in Hartley Bay. Okay, very cool. So now would what was the, like in your community, what was the main sustenance? Was it mostly fish or uh, obviously you're on the ocean there. So is it mostly fish and then you'd supplement it with goat and was the goat harvested? Obviously we know it's harvested for the wool. It's harvested for the fat. And and I know obviously all would be used the meat and everything, yeah, yeah. but was there something specifically that was really prized after or you know, you even talked about the, the horns being used for like as spoons and su such, right? So, yeah, I, I mean, outside of the meat, that was also very prized. It was like, um, well, like I laid out the fat was extremely important and, and, and all those ceremonial items um, were, were very sought after um, in the Simshian world. And it was a very big statement to be able to um, to have those items, to do those things. Another interesting piece about Simshian culture and people is our conception of wealth. Um, 
our conception of wealth is kind of like if you took Western society's uh, idea of accumulation in wealth and flipped it on its head, where in the potlatch system, when you debate politics or figure out disagreements and stuff, it's also whoever's hosting, it's their job to give out um, resources. And in our world, the more you've given out in your lifetime, the more prestigious of a person you are. And it's funny that in one sense, like you have this human group, this human culture that have developed over millennia that this is our conception of wealth and it's worked for us. And then you fast forward to like modern society and it's like, well, this is our conception. And clearly it's taking us in a different place of like individualism and greed and insustainability and like potentially taking society down in um, to hell in a handbasket. And, and, and both conceptions of wealth have like driven their own trajectory of a culture for millennia. But for us, it's been like, if you're the wealthiest person, you're giving this stuff away as much as you can. And in turn, people respect you and they often give things to you as well. And so an example of this, there's people who always just are feasting and helping out the community. I know when I catch a spring salmon, I'm going to give my first spring salmon to that person, no questions asked. And many other people in the village are doing that. Chances are they'll be putting that aside for their potlatch anyways, but also they're like, it's this gift economy. If people really, there's this amazing book by, um, I think it's just called, it's called Sacred Economics. And I think I cite it in that uh, Mountain Goat chapter by Charles Eisenstein. And it's about gift economies. He doesn't mention indigenous people, I don't think, but um, it's very, very much like an indigenous way of thinking about um, wealth. Anyways, it's a bit of a digression. All that to say, to be able to give out mountain goat was extremely prestigious because you needed to be, one, very good at what you're doing in order to spear or like snare and kill a mountain goat. That's just like, to think of me doing that today, it's it's mind-blowing. Though maybe I'll get to try it in this lifetime. We'll see. Uh, not anytime soon, though. I'm still hunting with a rifle. And so that in itself is like to feast many, many people and have enough mountain goat to do that. Um, it was special. Also, while knowing you can't over harvest. And so it might have taken years to save up that much mountain goat. Um, but yeah, like you say, we lived on the coast. So our the mainstays of our diet was it was totally salmon. And amongst that salmon, you're getting shellfish, um, seabirds, ducks. Um, within the last hundred years, we've had moose, lots of deer, um, and then, yeah, all kinds of, all the seafood you can think of. So mountain goats were just unique and special in their own way. Yeah. So with regards to, you talked about a lot of the times it'd be the females that would be into hunting or, or going out. Is that, was that the case where there females that would be going out and killing these goats like jumping off the cliffs and and harvesting or or was it uh is that more of a modern thing is it was it pretty prevalent in, in I'll, your... I'll try to clarify my thought um okay <laughs> the females are always encouraging harvesting and they're always processing and they're like the head of the household when it comes to hunting camp right 
But generally, these dangerous tasks were given to men because we were disposable. Right. And so I, 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 I haven't been given like any other explanation other than that is that maybe every now and then there was a female alpine hunter, but traditionally, like life was pretty tough and dangerous. Right. And so you don't want to lose women. They're the life givers of the community and they were extremely valued. And so when it, even things like messengers to neighboring communities, you never send women as a messenger um, because of that same reason. Right. But right. today, um, I, I'm sure there's, yeah, there, there's more women out hunting. and um, But that sort of moral that my mom held was more of being like wanting wild game and food in the household and being the sort of uh, head of the household when it came to that part. Yeah, very cool. So are there stories that were have been passed down or are you familiar with any? Uh, obviously, it was a very dangerous thing if you're, well, I guess probably the snaring was a little less dangerous, but obviously if the animal wasn't dead, you'd have to dispatch it. But, you know, certainly jumping off and spearing it, that that would be incredibly treacherous. So were there stories of, and obviously the more, there was mortality clearly with weather and, and avalanches and snowfall and a hundred other things. It was obviously very difficult to, to harvest a billy in those conditions. Yeah, there was totally mortality. And that's why I think not only out of respect for the animals, did the elders want to make sure you were good in the mine, but also out of respect for your family. Um, because I've been out in the bush where it's, you see people when they crack and they start to freak out. And that's when accidents happen, especially in the Alpine. And so, yeah, I mean, I in, in our community, no one's uh, talked about, that hasn't happened in quite a while where there was a death or something due to an Alpine hunt, but people talk about like, obviously it happened in the stories that the, the like fear from those stories is, is passed down and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So Spencer, you know, these rules that, that existed for the longest time, are they, are those rules still in modern day place? Do they still vet uh, people that are going to go out and, and harvest? And obviously that there's some sort of level of uh, harvest uh, limit and that sort of stuff, but do they still have these strict rules about who can and can't go? Obviously, with modern equipment and with firearms and and things, it's obviously not quite as challenging to harvest an animal. But they still have these rules around it. Yeah, it, it's interesting because, like I said, due to this undeniable fact that you have this culture where so much knowledge was taken away and attempted to be sort of removed and destroyed um, through assimilation that um, not everyone has access to this knowledge. Mm. And so it's kind of this thing where um, some people have been privileged to have this knowledge. And so you share it when you can. And people are interested in learning, especially the young generation. Um, and so if your village, you can pass it on in your village, but if you know if another village is hungry for that, you do your best to share it with them. And in the meantime, there is this like awkward growing pain of like getting back into it in many cases where you can, um, yeah, you can imagine, like I know in my community, there's people who have harvested mountain goats that weren't in the same like rigorous 
demanding sort of uh, study that I was put through by my elders. But it was because I was privileged to have this gang of elders always at my back. And so that person would show up in the village with a mountain goat. And maybe then the elders are like, hey, did you think of this? Did you do this? Like, where was this? And harvesting that information afterwards to ensure that they can incorporate that into their uh, repertoire of knowing what conservation decisions they should make moving forward with the hunting season, but also to be like, okay, this kid wants to be a goat hunter. Maybe we should give them more teachings. Again, Hartley Bay is a small community. It's very remote. And so it's very easy for the entire community to be involved and know what's going on. Um, in bigger communities that are like have maybe been affected by colonization more, they're more individualized. The hope is that that relationship is being repaired around these traditional systems while also encouraging um, new young hunters to maintain these traditions. And so it's just like, it's very nuanced in that degree of do people follow these laws is like a scale where it changes everywhere you go. But I guarantee you every indigenous community you go to, there's cultural researchers, there's people bringing back these practices if they're not currently being practiced and they're being encouraged. And um, that's for indigenous people, like this kind of research and this kind of remembering of knowledge is so important and very prized. And yeah, it's not like people don't want to be doing this. So we talk a little bit about assimilation and colonization and sort of this lost culture, the, you, you know, your lost indigenous culture. In your personal experience, in your community, are you seeing that strengthen now um, compared to, say, even when you were a, a young man, uh, like as a child? So does it seem more prevalent now and more more of a connection with uh, your indigenous history than than there was in the short, you know, 20, 30 years uh, that you've been sort of had it? experienced it yourself for sure yeah um it's been a con it's like there's been this momentum i would say since uh the 50s 60s um back in the 50s i forget what year but it was like illegal for quote unquote an indian to get a lawyer or to engage in any sort of political meeting or um, even leave the reserve without a pass or something and so you're very restricted in your own autonomy at that point. And then as like Indigenous people go to university, become lawyers, they start to combine these knowledge systems where they have traditional upbringings, but also know how to weave in and out of um, Canadian law, let's say. And so um, th that, that starts to come out into mainstream society as more Indigenous people are becoming political, becoming educated, it sort of has snowballed since then. And I would say a huge turning point has been like several court cases throughout the 90s that recognize Indigenous sovereignty and rights and title. And then in 2010, when Idle No More happened, I don't know if you remember that or familiar no, with don't. the term. Um, there was a lot of political momentum and like it was just Indigenous people clashing with the um, <clears throat> federal government at the time. And so there's a huge momentum around that lot of lawsuits, court cases around Indigenous rights and titles, sovereignty, decisions around um, destruction of ecosystems. And, um, and, and now more than ever, there's like this legal emphasis of Indigenous representation in 
decision making on ecosystems, decision making in the traditional territories moving forward. And just in my lifetime, like 2010, I remember that being a big switch. Um, but definitely it's been a snowball thing throughout my entire life. So in your studies, are you, you've talked a little bit about, uh, you're very, very familiar with it, but is this something that you did in your master's or you're doing your PhD around indigenous laws and governance, or is that something that, um, it's just your own interest that you've, you've been exploring those? I guess a bit of both my, um, my master's degree was in self-governance because I was very passionate about learning our hereditary system, our traditional government system, and understanding how that might look in the future of treaty negotiation or um, what just being self-determination is the term. Like, how can we be autonomous people that can honor our knowledge within our own education systems? How can we manage ecosystems in our territory? Because from our point of view, like DFO has managed the fisheries in a harmful way. How can we take over that? How can we do that? Because we believe we have the knowledge to do that in our local areas. And so I was really drawn to governance. And then around that time, I also ended up being on band council for my nation doing some legal research in the some um, court cases we were in with industry and uh, just sort of was thrown into that political world. Um, does that answer the question? Yeah. So, you know, what I'd like to talk a little bit about is how that relates to, um, you know, that we talked a little bit about before we got rolling here about, you know, um, if somebody has a status card, what, what rights do they have around harvest and and for you you know you talked about going on a stone sheep hunt so you know you have your uh, traditional rights in your own territory and your harvest rights but then now now you're off uh, maybe you're on uh, for lack of a better term crown land or government land uh, you know what what is your ability to to harvest there so um, I think you know sharing with our listeners a little bit about um there's a little bit of misinformation, right? I think some people think, oh, if you're First Nations, you can just go out and harvest things. And it's much more, well, we've just seen how challenging it is on your own traditional territory, trying to get the blessing of your 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 elders. So what's it like? Um, what, what are some of the uh, nuances around the, the laws and governance, especially when it comes to um, harvesting and, and taking wildlife uh, in, I guess, in your area? And I guess for British Columbia, and I, I know different areas are, it changes in what area you're in and, and, but let's talk a little bit about that, the, the legal aspect of it. And especially when it relates to wildlife and harvest. Okay. Yeah. Um, Easy, so right? A... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll try to cover what I can and what I know. Um, and there's a few pieces to this and I'm trying to think right now on the fly, how to start. But maybe it's important to start with recognizing what you said there, that there is this common conception that it's like this free-for-all if you have a status card. So much so that it pains me when I hear people talking about like applying for status or like applying for a Métis card because they want to have hunting rights or something. And it is such like a disassociated way of coming to indigeneity. And, and like, there's no care or um, emphasis on being a part of a community 
and 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 which is at the crux what this is all about. And so when you have a status card, generally you're from a First Nation. And when you're from a First Nation, you're allowed to harvest within that community's traditional territory in the traditional seasons and species within those seasons as you would have at the time of contact. And so it's a part of being a part of your own community and engaging in your own community's governance and management system of that wildlife species. Is that clear? Yeah, very clear. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm babbling or not. So again, it was like this really individualistic way of being like, oh, they just get to harvest whatever they want. They just do it. It's it's a very non-Indigenous way of seeing the actual piece here. That's actually, it's rooted in nation and community. It's not rooted in individualism. And these stories that I hear or people who talk to me and like, oh, I want to get a status card. So I get, it's like a very, I don't know, just individualistic way of coming to this question, this way of being. And so I, I like to try to dispel that. And so within that, it's your responsibility and your community's responsibility to one, ensure that you're harvesting within your community's um, traditional territory and their laws. And it's usually up to the nation, usually their oceans and lands department for us, or maybe just like a land stewardship department to act as like your biologist, your government biologist, which they do. Our guys are continuously like just very rigorous in knowing how many salmon have been harvested in our territory by our community members. They're, they're on the ball. They know how many moose have been harvested. They know how many mountain goats have been harvested. And so there's this ongoing communication that your average person would never see or never hear of between the indigenous hunters and the people in the community that keep track of this management. And then from there, it's usually council or those representatives of the stewardship um, offices or committees or whatever in a, a community that would negotiate with the province and say, this is our take for social ceremonial sustenance needs. And then that, from there, there's a negotiation saying, well, you know, our LEH, we need this many LEH, we think this year to satisfy hunters, to satisfy BCWF. Um, we want this many tags for residents. And that's how it plays out. And then the province decides, okay, we'll, we'll try to hold you to this many moose in your territory. We're going to give resident hunters this many moose. We're going to do this many LEH and this many non-resident tags. And that's kind of how it pans out. And so the average person who at times can be casting blame on Indigenous people in some way should be casting blame on the government because they're the ones on some level who manage this from the top, but also maybe shouldn't be casting blame at all and should be like more devoted to working within their own communities their own networks to like empower wildlife conservation that's an aside though but on, so on some level like you have this faith that the government is doing their due diligence the provincial government um around talking with indigenous peoples and their nations around what the harvest is and how we carry forward the management and so long story short this is all sort of coming to a head now with empowered Indi indigenous rights and title um, there's a lot of talk of like co-management these days. That's what co-management is, is better communication and decision-making 
between those indigenous bodies and other stakeholders, whether it's guides, whether it's the province, biologists, whoever. And so that's kind of how it funnels down. But I haven't gotten to the point about what's it look like for Spencer to go harvest a stone sheep outside of his territory. So should I dive into that, Kyle? Uh, I do want to do that, but let's let's touch on something you just talked about and this co-management. So Together for Wildlife is this new strategy that the government's released, and it's um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous. It's a partnership, effectively. And, um, uh, you know, I'm not sure. I know you're busy doing this thing called a doctorate. Um, so, you know, there's a little bit of and writing a book and, and, and. So uh, I don't expect you to know the nuances of what's going on with Together for Wildlife, but... Um, are we on the right path? It's sort of just on a very high level holistically when we look at this, are we on the right path? Is this the path of reconciliation and co-management? Is that where we need to get to? Or um, are, are we still way off the mark? I know there's lots of work to be done under that realm, but are we going down the right path with it? In short, yes. It's better than what we had yesterday. Interestingly, right. Together for Wildlife had some scholarships and I was the recipient of one of those scholarships for one year of my PhD. I'm very thankful for that. Um, awesome. Uh, but yeah, like this is the conversation that needs to happen. And maybe it's not the best process, but it's the best we have so far. And it's mm-hmm. and, and so let's keep working with that. And um, we had a little conference of the recipients and like everyone was combining science, biology with, indigenous knowledge in beautiful ways and building relationship with communities. And in my mind, there's absolutely no negative in that process. There's efficient ways to do it and we'll learn those better ways of doing it. But as like that big idea, like what is the downside? Awesome. Okay. So let's, we scratched the surface. We might as well just jump in now. So, you know, you talked about uh, assimilation and uh, colonization, and there's kind of been this years of, you know, trying to erase cultures. Um, How do we move forward in a meaningful way of trust? um, And how do we build that trust? What's, what do do you think we can get there? Do you think we're capable of doing that? Or is it, uh, is there too much water out of that bridge? Is it going to take a few generations? What does it look like to you from your perspective moving forward, Spencer? I'm going to try to tie in a few thoughts here. I think absolutely there's a way to move forward. I think it's going to be complex and nuanced. And um, I mean, this might make people uncomfortable or upset people, but I think there's also going to be this staunch realization that um, we live in this world of excess and the means in which we live today probably need to be toned down like and and that's gotta like affect our if spencer could wave a magic wand sometimes i i wish i could wave like some kind of ecological dictatorship would come into power in canada (laughs) 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 to like save us um uh other people might say, oh, the ecosystems are fine and they're and whatever. I mean, that's a, a conversation one could have. But um, in my opinion, like ecosystems need protection now. And um, and uh, I, I've kind of lost my point of this. Uh, but 
all all that to say is that hopefully as we have these conversations and tell these stories there's this realization as hunters as people who care about ecosystems that like these other things are of more importance like our relationship with nature than um, our excess and the excess that we live in and hopefully we take these like moral and value shifts in society that sort of um that needle sort of goes in another direction and um that was one point i wanted to make but also can you repeat the question again because i have several yeah, responses no, going in my head and i want to make I, sure I, I i'm to the point well that's great and there's so many rabbit holes we can go down and you, you keep stepping in one and going down it and do a, a wonderful job of articulating how you feel about it but i guess the point we we're trying to touch on was just that mutual how can we work together um, with years of sort yeah. of distrust and now we've got this path forward that says we're going to work together for wildlife we're going to take two um, cultures i guess if you will that's not a great but you know uh, indigenous non-indigenous and we're going to go back on track and look after wildlife but it's been after years of sort of distrust and how can we build that bridge moving forward um, it, it boils down to like relationship on some mm -hmm. level and um, mm -hmm. recognizing that being in relationship with each other is this ongoing thing that won't end. It's not a one and done thing. And through relationship, I think this was the point I was trying to make through relationship and sharing story. We'll share these like values and teachings and lessons around wildlife where we can both like improve ourselves, hopefully. And mm -hmm. as we work together, it's like a marriage where it's not perfect in the first few years, but hopefully by year 50, like things are going pretty smooth and you've got each other figured out and you know how to work together well. Um, maybe even by year 20, who knows? Um, but that's kind of like all of this boils down to that. And um, I, I, I find like when I talk about any of this stuff and all these things we discussed today will be things I write about in my research and in this book and so I apologize in advance if people like listen to me talk and it sounds like I'm a broken record, but so many of our lessons we need to learn are like lessons around how we relate to each other and how we relate to the non-human world as well. And so to bring this back to a couple things, um, I wanted to, we were going to talk about like my own experience hunting sheep outside of my territory. Mm -hmm. But yes. also this drastic difference that is just so glaring to me when I first started hunting, like in a non-Indigenous context, which um, it, it, it's debatable, but I would say most of my hunts were in an Indigenous context um, throughout my, my life until I started hunting with Dylan from Eat Wild. And then it kind of opened my eyes to be like, oh, this is what it means to hunt as a resident hunter. And I just started to learn. And so this opportunity to go on a sheep hunt together came up. And, uh, and, and I went on the sheep hunt, but it was far outside my territory in another place um, uh, for something that, you know, yeah, I've never hunted for before. And that the reason i bring this up is it ties back to that question of relationship for someone who preaches relationship 
um, when it comes to like thinking about those mountain goats in our territory or the salmon or shellfish or whatever we're harvesting. That's always going through my mind because that's what I was taught to think about is how my relationship with these things um, pans out as I harvest them. Well, here I'm essentially being dropped in this place I've never been. I have no relationship with. And it's like this existential dread because I, it's this glaring thing where it's like, I'm just showing up to take. Right. And, 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 and that's like kind of the model in some way. It's like the model of British Columbia. If you look at the history, this like boom and bust taking. And on some level, my mind's thinking, it's like, what, what is this? It's like the hunting, this model of hunting or just how we hunt, like tied to this boom and bust sort of thing where, you know, people come from lower mainland, they show up and they hunt where there's good hunting and they take it back to Vancouver. They barely talk with locals. None of those resources go back to those locals. And it like feeds their people that those locals will never meet in Vancouver. And so things are just going through my mind and I'm thinking now I'm engaging in with, with this. And so here's this real divergence where on some level, I don't know what to do. On another level, I know that I've been given teachings around respect and ceremony and just cultural things I can do to sort of pay respects to those places, those territories in the non-human world. And so I do those cultural things throughout the trip. And um, still make sense of it. We had a successful hunt, which was amazing as a first-time sheep hunter. Um, you can listen to the story on the Eat Wild podcast because <laughs> it's a bit of a wild ride. Um, but also, uh, at the end of the day, I still don't know what to make of it because I've participated in this system that feels like it's just designed for the taking. And so I, I, I feel like emboldened to do a dive. And something I'm excited to talk about in hopefully in my book and hopefully in other spaces is where are these convergences and divergences between like indigenous morals and values and like morals and values of your um, regional hunter in BC. And the conclusion I have so far is, yeah, there's probably a good chunk of people that will just show up and take. And if there's no more moose there, no more tags, they'll just move somewhere else. And that really bums me out. And if you do that, I encourage you to take a good hard look at how you're taking from an ecosystem and whether you can give back to it. But then there are other ways that like the hunting world has produced this beautiful reciprocity. And as I engaged in this world, it was like the wild sheep, uh, BC Wild Sheep Society, Wild Sheep Foundation, like these, that's the ethic, that's the moral where it's like this relationship that is just becoming embedded in how you think about harvesting. And so there's a, a portion of the hunters who engage in that and a portion who don't. And it's like not black and white, it's the scale of things. And so as I like come to terms with what was I doing hunting outside of my territory, potentially in a place I'll never visit again. Well, maybe there's ways I can morally and respectfully do that if I'm putting money or funds or energy towards these species. And so this is all just like a, um, a thinking exercise I'm doing, but I'm hoping it resonates. And I, I, on, on some level, like I want to lift up um, the, the Wild Sheep Society, RMGA, Rocky, Mo Mount, Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance, 
and these organizations that really hold this ethic that I see has been embedded for millennia within my community around mountain goats. It's like we're putting them first and we're going to fight for them and we're going to put our energy towards them. But we also need to be critical how that's probably just a portion of hunters. It is just a portion, maybe a fraction of all the hunters in BC. I don't know the numbers, but that's all food for thought. Those are all the like internal conflicts I was going through on this beautiful, beautiful sheep hunt where I harvested this beautiful, beautiful animal. And uh, I'll leave it at that. Wow, that's uh, that's a lot to unpack. And you kind of got me fired up when we started talking about it. And uh, uh, I've got a totally different perspective on on what I do now and what, you know, and you drew a great parallel in many ways, right? Like, uh, you know, somebody living in downtown Vancouver, downtown Victoria, what can they do for, you know, they want to they want to go out and they want to to take, what can they do to give back, right? And they, you know, what are they doing to to support ecosystems they're taking from by living in these massive cities, it's pretty difficult to do that. So, you know, I guess it's a different way of trying to find what they're doing. It's a really interesting perspective. And, and it's an interesting dichotomy that you experienced being there and having that internal conflict. I'm going to take something out of this, this community from, from a, an indigenous community that probably, you know, goes and harvests these animals. And I've never done anything to contribute to that. So I've never thought of it from that perspective. It's, um, that's very, very, uh, it's enlightening. Yeah, and I hope that it feels enlightening to a lot of people and something that we need to come to terms with with humans, and I'm guilty of this too, is like just this sense of entitlement that mm -hmm. um, because it's there, I have a right to take it without any critical thought. And I'm not saying you don't have a right, but I'm saying you should be critical about this and think about it in a deep way because, I mean, that's what I was taught to do and I hope other people are taught the same. And I know many are. I mean, whether you're in non-Indigenous non or Indigenous, like a lot of hunting families have like strict morals and values around hunting, but also a lot of people are just like, you know, kind of flaky when it comes to that stuff. And and so, yeah, what makes you think you have the right to just, just because you live in BC, you have a right to go harvest this resource that maybe might not be being monitored properly. Um, another community might be, really reliant on it for their winter food when you have access to all these other things living in the lower mainland i'm picking on the lower mainland right now but this is just <laughs> they're, an, they're an easy target yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but yeah really thinking about that entitlement why do i you know is it because like oh i stayed in a hotel i bought groceries i'm giving back to the community i don't think that's good enough i don't think buying a tag is good enough i think this there needs to be something richer and deeper and um and again, to end on a positive note, I think like these organizations tap into that deeper piece. Yeah, uh, well said. Well, this is uh, this has been good. I I loved uh, loved everything we talked about today, and uh, there's so much more we could talk about, Spencer. Um, and I we definitely have to have you back on, and and I think that's going to be our our best uh, our best foot forward is to have you come back, but. Uh, very enlightening today great stuff and uh yeah so we'll listen to eat wild for your your sheep hunt but then i want to have you back on because there's a whole bunch of stuff that we haven't even scratched the surface on that i want to talk about but uh um anyone that's interested in following your studies following your phd following your book how can they connect with you where do they want to, where do they go to check you out um 
the easiest way is to like show up in Hartley Bay and ask where Spencer is. <laughs> <laughs> I check Instagram from time to time. I'm on Instagram under Spencer Greening or my Simshian name, Lagod, L-A-G-O-O-T dot S-G, I think. But other th I'm not very active on social media. Um, yeah, I just try to keep it real. And <laughs> I, I, I get cranky at it. That's why I, I get, uh, as in the side note, like I, I just get sick of, um, I don't know, the ego that's tied to social media. And I get disappointed with humankind on some days when I log in. So I try to stay off as much as I can. It's pretty easy to do on the on online. I'm with you. I, I can totally appreciate where you're coming from. Uh, and what is what does this look like for you? Obviously, you're finishing your PhD. You're writing a book. Do you have any time for hunting? Are you going hunting this spring or this fall? So this because of the PhD, I, I thought this was going to be <laughs> the last or one year where I got zero hunting in. Um, hilariously, I had a meeting in Hartley Bay, and there was this problem bear, and so everyone's <laughs> like, "Spencer, I'll get it." So it became this great experience where we have like these indigenous crab apple orchards there uh, and indigenous species. And uh, it was just munching on those and a great fall bear to get. Um, and, uh, and so we got it and I got to like, got it and process it and talk about it with all the kids at the school. So that was mm -hmm. super fun. Aside from that, I totally missed hunting season and it broke my heart this year. But um, I, I got a, a few things on the go coming up. I'm getting very fired up for a goat hunt this year. We're hoping to do some filming that'll parallel the book. Okay. And so um, fingers crossed if things go well. I don't like talking about things before they happen. Right. Um, yeah. Because um, you never know. But if things go well, we'll have a little like short documentary series on a seasonal harvest. And one of those harvests will be goat. So we've got some filming planned this coming year. Um, as uh, sort of tied with that book project and and uh yeah very cool after that we'll see what happens um i also like politics and so i'm always doing politics working in politics for my nation on the sidelines very cool now i got something for you i, I you just tweaked something that i thought of earlier that i want to ask you about once you're you have a successful harvest you go out and let's talk about goats because we were talking about goat hunting earlier so you go out and let's say you're going back to your traditional territory, you harvest the goat. Is there any ceremonial stuff that you do when you come back to your community um, that's involved with it? Or even, you know, certain people have certain traditions and for your community or for you specifically, there's something uh, ceremonial wise that you will do with the, the animal once you've successfully harvested it? Yeah, there's, um, I'm always kind of uncomfortable talking about, ceremony stuff publicly i thought i thought it might be and, and that's fine we don't have to dive into it if you'd rather not so um uh, i mean I, i'm happy to say that yeah it, th there are like things you do in an order and they can like involve songs offerings etc um which you would see in many places like in the interior or i think a lot of people talk about offering tobacco um i i've i've heard people talk about um like um putting the, the last thing that animal was eating in its mouth so that it has food on its last journey. Um, and and, and um, depending on where or what I'm hunting, those things change. And uh, yeah, it, it always involves an offering, always involves a small ceremony of sorts. 
and then um, also protocols around like how to deal with it. Something that I struggle with too is like <clears throat> us SimCN, we're very sensitive to um, like the spirit of of words of talking, and um, there's this thing I noticed, and this is a side tangent, where like indigenous hunters are kind of like quiet when we kill something and do something and uh non-indigenous hunters are kind of like oh yeah kill the bastard you shot him and, like it's like why do you talk like that i don't understand it and it's just like this different thing like i, I don't know um that's a side tangent maybe it's a generalization just as much of a generalization as people would be like oh indigenous hunters waste food um and they kill whatever you know But anyways, I, I kind of could put my foot in my own mouth there. I shouldn't lay blame. And I should say that, like, it's a serious experience. Um, we're, we're always taught to watch what you say at these points in time. And, uh, and there's a lot of, like, nuance that depends on where you are and like in your life my wife is pregnant right now and so every time i'm within eyesight of an animal i have to do certain things i can't say certain things otherwise the animal will take the spirit of my words and turn it against the baby that's in my wife and so there's all kinds of like nuance that depend on where you are and what you're doing and the place and the animal and all this stuff but another side tangent but Yeah, we're careful with our words. We do offerings and just to give the utmost thanks and and obviously harvesting, like taking home as much as we can. Um, we've, we've been taught how um, certain spirits live on these mountains and they get deeply offended when you leave aspects out. Another piece is like deboning. I, I struggle with that. Um, my hunting buddy and I took... Um, When we got that sheep, Scott is his name, because we had a party of um, four people and Scott was with me on that sheep hunt. We hauled all the bones back. And, uh, and the butcher was like, holy shit, you guys brought all the bones back? I was like, yeah, why, like, why wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, yeah. yeah, so things like that, that like alongside the ceremony, you would never leave the bones out in the open. Like, you're not supposed to. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's things you do with the bones if like yeah um uh burning them burning the bones so like those spirits won't see them is one way to do it and so it like makes everything more intentional and long and drawn out where like you're on the mountain potentially like smoking meat or doing meat and then also burning things that you can't take back um i've never done that though because i yeah generally done my best to pack out what i can but i fail too sometimes i'm talking like i'm super intense guy no man <laughs> i'm human and i fail and i like take shortcuts and right i screw up yeah. so but yeah those are some thoughts yeah very cool well learned so much today spencer it's been amazing having you on and uh i, I hope we can connect again i know you're super busy i want to wish you the best of luck with your book Uh, with your PhD. And uh, so when, when you're done with it, your thesis will be published and it'll be available publicly online. Is that correct? Yeah. So the thesis will be probably through like some SFU, Simon Fraser University database um, published, but also 
um, specifically, probably more interestingly for folks, is the sole sort of mountain goat chapter will be available through some academic journal. And I'll be happy to share that with you um, uh, when that's public. And I, I, I tried to do it through a publicly accessible academic journal so everyone can read it. And, and yeah, because my other stuff dabbles in archaeology and linguistics, other things. Right on. Well, maybe once you uh, publish and you uh, you're done, you, you've you've done. Do, do you guys do you challenge your th they challenge your thesis? Is that how it works? And yeah, you kind of get grilled for a few hours by a bunch of academics on what you could have done better. Or right. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like and then you get the golden handshake and and you're a doctor. Yeah. And amazing. Yeah. Very cool. Well, let's let's do this again. I know I got to be respectful of your time here, but let's get back together and. I uh, learned so much today and I really appreciate it. And uh, just a super cool conversation. And thank you for for articulating your thoughts and, and being so respectful and, and sort of helping me to understand some of the challenges that, uh, you know, some of the things that I don't understand that uh, about Indigenous cultures. So thank you for that today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to like being in closer relationship with folks who work with wild sheep. I'm all about it. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks, Spencer. Yeah, take care.